and turn to John chapter 10. And this one is the true shepherd and the sheep. The true shepherd and his sheep. And we're continuing John. Uh, I'm going to read 1 to 18, John chapter 10. But we're, we're going to look at verses 3 to 5 or 6. Most surely I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, <coughs> he goes before them, and they follow him. For they know his voice. If they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said, And I most surely I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and come out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling he does not. But a, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep, but I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd." Therefore my Father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. The allegory continues and shows us in more detail how the shepherd is different than the wolves and the thieves. The thieves and the robbers. <coughs> in verses 3 to 5. The doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, they call his own sheep by name, leads them out. When he brings them out, his own sheep, he goes before them, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger or flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Well, there are a number of things said about the shepherd in these verses, that, as well as the sheep. Let's look at it. First, the doorkeeper or porter knows that the shepherd is good and legitimate, and therefore opens the door for him. Welcomes him in by opening the door. The doorkeeper is not the focus of the story, but there are still many views as to who the doorkeeper is, and uh, many will say that it's the Holy Spirit. Others think it's Moses and the law. <clears throat> Some think the doorkeeper is Jesus. Christ is the doorkeeper and, and the door, according to that view. A number of commentators think the doorkeeper is John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, who pointed out the Messiah to the people who introduced him to their, into their midst. Another common view, which I lean toward, is that the doorkeeper is simply subordinate to the parable and only serves to reinforce the entrance by the door, the legitimate lawful manner of entrance. The shepherd does not need to sneak over the wall because he possesses the sheep in the enclosure and he has come to help them. Second, the sheep in the enclosure hear and recognize his voice. They know that he is their leader and has come to help them. He calls the sheep by name. The sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd through regeneration. The ability to hear and believe is the work of the Holy Spirit 
on the heart. True faith leads to obedience and discipleship. The sheep hear, obey, and follow the shepherd. The shepherd calls his own sheep by name because they were chosen before the foundation of the world and have been given to Jesus by the Father. Particular redemption. This is individual election. This teaching is reinforced and explained further in, in John 10, 14 to 16. <clears throat> I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even I, and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Again, he's talking about national Israel. The other sheep that are not of this fold would be the Gentiles. Them I, almost must, I also must bring, the Gentiles' nations. And they will hear my voice. There will be one flock, which is the church composed of Jews and Gentiles, and one shepherd, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the focus. These verses prove that Jesus is calling the individually elect out of national Israel. There's national election, the visible church where you can have goats and sheep, and there's individual election, where you're definitely chosen by Christ and you will be saved. <clears throat> he calls out those who were given to him by the Father, those who he will shed his blood for on the cross, those he will send the Holy Spirit into their hearts based on the efficacy of his atoning work. So it's all very clear. John, John's Gospel, by the way, is one of the most Calvinistic books in the whole New Testament. The sheep will come to Christ. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Particular redemption. Chapter 9 in the Incident of the Blind Beggar supports this interpretation. The healed blind man is clearly a case of Jesus calling out his own sheep. The Pharisees who are the enemies of the Gospel and the enemies of Christ were doing everything they could to get the healed, beg healed beggar to denounce and reject Jesus. And you notice they do that to his parents, too. They were attacking the sheep like thieves and robbers. They believed that through ecclesiastical coercion, leading finally to excommunication, they could cut off this healed blind man from the sheepfold and the blessings of God's covenant. But Jesus is showing him and us the truth. The healed blind man has followed the voice of the true shepherd and has now entered, entered the place of true blessing and salvation. If the healed man <coughs> had denounced Jesus and remained within apostate Judaism, he would not only have remained under the authority of spiritual thieves and robbers, but would have not entered the true kingdom of salvation and blessing. The healed man was now under the authority of the true Good Shepherd, who instead of abusing him and casting him out of their church, dies for him and saves him. What a beautiful story. The Good Shepherd is, in a sense, in a sense, spoke to him by name. In other words, Jesus singled him out. It's individual election. And he led him out of the heretical apostate, dead, barren wilderness of Pharisaical Judaism to the lush green pastures of biblical Christianity. 
there's nothing sadder to me. I, well, I like to watch a lot of things of the Holocaust because it's hard to believe it happened, but it did happen. And um, there's nothing sadder for me to see the, the Jews will go back. I, I saw this thing. There was actually a Jew, uh, German officer who saved a bunch of Jews by putting them to, like Schindler, but he's not, he's not as famous. He's not as well known who had a shop and he trained all these Jews and their families how to work on cars. And so they would repair trucks and cars for the German army. And uh, they went back to the site. Uh, when he was gone, they, anyway, they came in, they killed a bunch of Jews. And he, what he did is he told the Jews, you have to build hiding places to hide your, ch your children because they're going to come and they're going to take your children away. So they built, he saved, I forget, it was 250 to 500 Jewish children that he saved. And one adults too. And, and you go and, and they go back there and they have their rabbi with them and, and so these these poor Jews who were treated like that by the Nazis have these 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 thieves these robbers over them not that they're outwardly committing wicked acts these rabbis but they're teaching people to deny Christ they're teaching people that Christ is a false prophet they're teaching people that Christ was a magician they're teaching people that Christ was a blasphemer false prophets false teachers it's very sad The Germans killed the body. The Nazis killed the body. But these rabbis, these false rabbis, they destroy the soul. Now we have Christ's sheep, or these individually chosen, or elect within national Israel, as proved by John 10, 26-29. Excuse me. I have the effects of COVID still. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What Jesus did, of course, applies to all history, through the preaching of the gospel. There is the general call to everyone who hears the gospel message. But many who hear the gospel message, uh, but among those who hear the gospel message, there is a special particular call, as Jesus said, Matthew 20, verse 16, for many are called, but few are chosen. Why is it you'll go preach, you'll go preach to a crowd of pagans, like you go speak at a college or something, and out of 100 people, you might have three people that become Christians. That'd be a good day today. Now, there's periods of history where God brings revival, but that, that would be good today. Many are called, but few are chosen. To the sheep, the elect, the outward call is attended by an inward call of the Holy Spirit. This call is effectual, invincible, and irresistible. Not because man is forced to do something he does not want to do, <coughs> but because the Holy Spirit changes the person's heart. That heart now hears and understands. It was blind. It was dead. It was unable to see. But now it hears and understands and loves the Lord and wants to follow the good shepherd. And Paul makes the same point in Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who, are, who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he loved beforehand, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. 
and whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's nothing about falling away, a true Christian falling away from Christ there. Predestined, called, justified. He, leaved out, he left out sanctified, but that, we could assume that. And glorified. Glorified is when you're resurrected and you get a glorified body. The inward effectual call is heard by the sheep because they are given ears to hear. Only Christ's sheep can hear, believe, and obey. <clears throat> the goats cannot hear, and they could, not, they could care less. They're blind. As he said to the Pharisees, you are blind. In a moment, Jesus will say, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. 1026. Why, do you not, why, why don't you believe? Is it because you're not wise enough or you don't have enough insight? No, it's because you're not of the elect. You're not one of the sheep. Now, one of the best ways to know if we are a true Christian is whether we follow Christ's voice. It is very easy for people to say they're a Christian. Many people say they're Christians. Most people say they're Christians in the United States. Or that they believe. But if one claims to be a sheep, yet refuses to obey the word of God, that is the voice of the shepherd, one is self-deceived. Today, a form of easy believism is preached that denies the necessity of repentance and sanctification. Very common. Faith in Christ is all one needs to be justified. That is true. God works. Good works have nothing to do with justification at all. But we are justified to follow the shepherd and obey his voice. Justification, as our Westminster standards say, justification is always attended by all the other saving graces. Justification leads immediately to sanctification. Sanctification leads to perseverance and glorification. In other words, we must take up the cross and follow Jesus as faithful disciples through thick and thin. Justification is always accompanied with sanctification and perseverance and faithfulness. Dispensationalists, classical dispensationalists, deny this by holding to the carnal Christian heresy that a sheep can have Jesus as Savior, yet while refusing to submit to him as Lord. Many years ago, um, John MacArthur put out a book on uh, the Lordship Controversy. And I, hopefully it went through another edition, because the first edition was really poorly written and theologically imprecise. But the general thing he was trying to say is that you have to repent. You can't. You, faith is attended by repentance and sanctification. He said it in such a way that it kind of sounded like the federal vision. He said it in such a way that it was kind of sloppy. But anyway, he was accused... The, immediately a bunch of dispensationalists, famous dispensationalists, came out against them and said, how dare you say that we have to repent? We don't have to repent. That's a Jewish doctrine. If you have to repent, then it's not, you're not justified by faith alone. Nonsense. We are justified by faith alone. But true faith always leads to good works. True faith always results in sanctification. <clears throat> They ignore the doctrine of sanctification. The federal visionists deny Christ's teaching by missing covenant faithfulness with faith uh, or equating the two as necessary for justification. They follow the old, old Roman Catholic heresy, which merges justification with sanctification. <coughs> okay, the biblical view is justification is objective to the sinner. You're declared righteous in the heavenly court by God the Father you, the moment you believe. You're saved. You're justified. You have eternal life. You possess it. The Roman Catholic view is that justification is a work done in you 
by the power of the Spirit, as you cooperate with grace, if you get good enough, if you're faithful enough, you'll be justified. Well, the federal visionists don't put their view so crassly as the Roman Catholic, but that's basically what they're teaching. Faith is not enough, they say. You have to be covenantally faithful to be justified, which they get from Norman Shepherd, which is a damnable heresy. Sanctification always accompanies justification, but must always be kept separate from it. Justification is objective and instantaneous. Sanctification is subjective and a long process that is never completed in this life. And I'll never forget. I heard an interview. I wish I had it. I used to have a tape. There was an interview with Doug Wilson and Slissel and all these guys after the Federal Vision controversy broke back in 2002. And the interviewer said to him, well, why don't you just say that sanctification or good works is a fruit of faith? And they laughed. They laughed because they, they were holding to a Roman Catholic concept. Now, after the position is stated in verses 3 and 4, the true sheep listen, obey, and follow the shepherd, the negative is laid out in verse 5. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. <coughs> because the true sheep are regenerated and possess the Holy Spirit, they understand and believe the truth. They also have the ability to discern serious error and damnable heresies. The natural man, here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15, the natural man, that's the unregenerate man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. He understands the, these important biblical truths. And, you know, like when I go visit relatives in California, I'll be going out there this week. I have to do a funeral. <coughs> uh, my old buddies from high school, they're, all, they're, they're not Christians. They totally mock Christianity and make fun of it. They think it's the stupidest thing in the world. Why would you not party and have fun and get married and, and live that, you know, to them it's a boring life. Uh, why would you do that for some old book, you know? They think it's foolishness. And they're wrong. And, of course, we Christians have the abundant life. Lord willing, I'll get to that. We're the ones with the abundant life. <clears throat> When John explains apostasy and why some professing Christians persevere, he says, and this is from 1 John 2, 19-20, They went out from us, they left the, the visible church, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you, the ones who stayed and remained faithful, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. Once again, I, he's speaking about spiritual matters. You understand spiritual truths. This explains why true sheep will not listen to false shepherds or heretics. When the Federal Vision thing broke, the Christians that I, my circles that I hung out with immediately go, wow, this is terrible. Have you heard this? This, this sounds like Roman Catholicism. This is a heresy. But there were a lot of people who said, oh, no, 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 it's fine. They're, they're fine. They're just teaching that we need to be sanctified. They were not just teaching that. And they could have ended the controversy in five seconds if they had just said, 
we're teaching that once you're justified by Christ, you need to be sanctified. But they were merging the two. Now, we have all met professing Christians who float about with every wind of doctrine. And they are even, uh, they err even in the fundamentals of the faith. They follow the latest theological fad. I know people that have converted to Roman Catholicism who are, I know a guy who was in the Free, Pres the Free Church of Scotland who converted to Roman Catholicism, if you can believe that. I know people that have converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. I know people that were Reformed that are Mormons now. Yeah, I know it's hard to believe. How can anyone believe in something so stupid and clearly satanic? They love to have their ears tickled by some false shepherd. But the true believer will not follow the Pharisee, the Romanist, the consistent Arminian, the federal visionist, the full preterist, and so on. They won't follow that. <coughs> Christ's teaching here predicts the perfect and complete separation of the Pharisees' controlled synagogues the Pharisee-controlled synagogues from the Church of Christ. There will be a breach. The Pharisees will not tolerate the truth. And so the Christians had to establish their own distinct synagogues, their own distinct churches, and they did. That happened right away. Darkness cannot coexist with the light. The truth cannot tolerate and compromise with error. It is for this reason that the great age of ecumenicalism and institutional union came about only after the great rise of modernism and unbelief. They denied the word of God. Once you deny that the, the Bible's the word of God, that it's infallible and inerrant, and that it's inspired, once you deny that, then unite up around anything. You can unite around anything. It is easy for false shepherds and false sheep to unite for they all hate Christ. They all hate the word of God. They all hate the truth. They all hate the gospel of grace. Since they think and live in darkness, they have no reason to be separate. And so in the, from the 1940s through the 1970s, there were, one, there were union after union after union after union. All those churches today have sodomite and lesbian perverts as pastors. They all accept transgender. They all accept abortion on demand, which is murder. They all accept communism and socialism. They all support the Democratic Party. They're satanic to the very core because they're false shepherds. But true believers, the sheep, will not listen to or tolerate false teachers. Any Reformed church that transfers members <coughs> to a Roman... <laughs> excuse me, to a Roman Catholic modernist or Armenian church is openly rejecting the teaching of our text. And I say that because when I was in the RPCNA, our session was forced by Presbytery to transfer somebody to a, a liberal church because they were, quote, Trinitarian. I don't care if you're Trinitarian or not. If you reject the Bible as the word of God, why bother being a Trinitarian? Believe anything you want. The mark of a true cheap is that they will never follow or support false teachers. Even a babe in Christ who is truly regenerate, who is not sophisticated or mature in his theological training or knowledge, can discern a false shepherd. The Holy Spirit and his limited knowledge of doctrine is enough for him <coughs> to identify damnable heretics. But those without the Spirit even if they're well-educated, even if they study a lot and are highly intellectual, are easily led astray by false teachers 
into every sort of heresy. When I was at Reformed Episcopal Seminary in the late 70s, there was a group of students there, I think about three students, three or four students, who were the smartest guys in the whole school. Well, they were super smart. And um, they, you know, they got proud about it, and they got arrogant about it, and they started reading Karl Barth and Bruner, and they started reading liberal theologians because they thought it was cool and sophisticated. Well, they, they all became liberal. They all became liberals. They all rejected the faith. They were the smartest guys in the whole school. One of the guys was the best preacher in the school. And they all rejected the faith. None of them are Christians today. And I, I think they're divorced as well. There are many Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox who used to be Reformed. If you possess the Holy Spirit and are enlightened by Him, it is your responsibility to study Scripture and good Reformed theology to help you discern truth from error, true shepherds from false shepherds. Okay, our text assumes that you have to listen to the voice of Christ. Well, the voice of Christ is speaking in the Scripture. Christ is not walking with us on earth anymore. We need to study the Scriptures. Now, at this time, it is wise to distinguish between errors in doctrine or practice that can occur with true believers and serious damnable errors that send someone to the pit of hell. <clears throat> there are many Christians who have errors in non-damnable areas. I just want to make this clear. I don't want people to say, Brian's saying that if you don't believe in the Westminster Standards, you're going to hell. There are Baptists. They're obviously wrong. There are many in the Reformed community with corrupt worship. In fact, the majority have corrupt worship today. There are many people who err in eschatology and teach, you know, like premillennialism that's obviously unscriptural. Um, they err in eschatology and church government. These are errors. But they are not damnable errors. Just as our sanctification in this life is never complete, our knowledge of doctrine and practice is never perfect. I'm not excusing error, and I'm not saying that we should tolerate errors that contradict our standards. You can have uh, communicating relations with a group, but not fraternal relations. In other words, you acknowledge that they're Christians, but you don't serve them communion because they're, they're in serious error. But it's not a damnable error. That's where people make a mistake. They say, well, if you're not willing to serve somebody communion, you're saying they're not a Christian. Not necessarily. Somebody could be an heir. They could have a problem where you shouldn't serve them communion, but you're not saying they're not Christians. I'm simply pointing out that Christians are fallible and make many mistakes. But these errors are not attacks on the fundamentals of the faith or things that are damnable, such as attacks on the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the atonement, justification by faith alone, the second literal bodily coming of Christ, etc. The true Christians are real sheep. Uh, to true Christians, errors, such errors are obvious. But true Christians are real sheep, will not follow the voice of damnable heretics. They will not be taken in by damnable heretics. We should be very thankful to God for the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I wish that everybody believed the Westminster Standards. I wish everybody had their doctrine and practice straight, and had biblical worship and all those things. But in God's providence and God's wisdom, sanctification is never completed in this life. He has been very gracious in securing our perseverance by enabling us to separate doctrine that is true and vital from vile, heretical, satanic trash. As John says, 
in 1 John 2.20. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, by the efficacy of his death and resurrection, has made provision for us to protect us from going the wrong way. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us, who works in conjunction, always in conjunction with the Word of God, we are given the ability to discern, understand, and avoid theological wolves who threaten the flock. Now remember, the Holy Spirit guides us by the Word of God. The Holy Spirit, in the initial stage of regeneration, works immediately on the soul, without any intermediate means. There's nothing, but that branches forth immediately with the gospel, and then it's it's uh, not immediate, it's immediate. So in sanctification, it's immediate ministry. The Holy Spirit works on your heart in conjunction with the Word of God. I'm saying that to, to distinguish between uh, Quakers, for example, and Charismatics. not by inner voices or some inner light apart from the word. We are not Quakers or mystics or charismatic heretics. The Spirit focuses our mind on Scripture, causes us to understand it, believe it, and then put it into practice. Remember, we hear the voice of the shepherd. We are not walking around in Capernaum with Jesus. He is at God's right hand. And if we are to listen to and follow his voice, we must believe and obey the sacred Scriptures. There were actually Puritans in the beginning who went off and they, they got off on this thing, well, the Holy Spirit talks to me directly and I don't need scripture. And those people developed into what became the Quakers, which is a totally heretical sect. The church was founded upon the foundation laid by the inspired apostles and prophets. That foundation is the completed revelation of scripture. Roman Catholics, Quakers, Charismatics, and all cults do not believe this vital truth. They don't believe it. They do not believe that vital truth. And then we read that the crowd did not understand in verse 6. <coughs> we learn that the Pharisees and their followers did not understand our Lord's simple allegory. Jesus used this illustration, if you have the old King James, it'll say parable. But they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. The word translated parable in the KJV or illustration uh, in the new KJV is peroimia, which I discussed earlier. The word does not occur in the synoptic gospels at all, but only occurs in John. The other gospels use paraboli, which means parable. The word paramoia means allegory, and the word the word they were uh, in this word refers to the Pharisees and their disciples that they don't understand. This view is proved by the context. Now, the fact that the Pharisees did not understand this allegory is interesting. For they quickly understood that the husbandman who killed the heir at the vineyard applied to them. So they did understand the parables at times. Matthew 21, 45 says, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But in the case, in this case, the spiritual blindness, uh, their spiritual blindness that is reflected in the allegory, is manifest. They didn't understand what he was saying. They could not fathom that Jesus was the true shepherd, and they were acting like thieves and robbers. This shows either a poor knowledge of the Old Testament or a blindness when reading Scripture, or both. 
all those passages we looked at in the Old Testament <coughs> that spoke of Yahweh or the Messiah as the faithful shepherd and the leaders of Israel as blind, corrupt, and evil should have taught them exactly what Jesus was saying. Remember, the key to understanding the New Testament is to understand the Old Testament. And one of the problems with evangelical preaching today, one of, one of the major problems is that because of dispensationalism, there's a disrespect of the Old Testament, a disrespect of God's law, and therefore people don't know the Old Testament as they ought. And the more you know the Old Testament, the more you'll understand the book of Revelation, the more you'll understand the Gospels and so forth. In addition, the Old Testament has many passages that speak about individual election or the gathering of the remnant among the corrupt nation. Here's just a few. Jeremiah 3, 14 to 15, we read, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Not everybody among Israel, one here, a couple there. That's election. Jeremiah 23, 2-3 says, Thus says the Lord God against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Is God going to save all Israel? I mean, without exception? No. He's going to save a remnant. Amos 3.12 says, Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria. Micah 2.12 and 13c says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather together the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Messianic prophecy. And then in 1 Kings 19.14, remember that? Elijah's very discouraged. He's all upset. And he says to God, Yet I, uh, he says to God, I alone am left. No, everybody's apostate. Nobody follows you anymore, Lord. Well, what does God say to him? In verse 18, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, 7,000. The population of Israel was over a million. That's pretty sad. That's really sad. That shows there was just a tiny remnant within national Israel at that time. But that's the case. That's the way it was. But there's that thing of the remnant, the elect. And then in Matthew 24, 31, we read about God's messengers. Now it's translated angels, but I think here it should be translated messengers, gathering the elect before Jesus comes in judgment on apostate Israel. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. And if you look at Matthew 24, that comes before the verse. Uh, there's, a, there's a verse in Matthew 24 where he says, And all these things, everything I said previously, everything I just said, will take place in this generation. And that's part of it. So it's talking about... Jesus, the evangelist, and the apostles gathering the elect out of Israel before the destruction falls. The apostles' teaching on this is most clear in Romans 11. This is verse 7. Israel has not attained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. The elect obtained it, the rest were blinded. Romans 9, 6 to 8. But it is not that the word of God has not taken effect, for they are not all Israel who are all of Israel. For... 
nor are they all children because they are the seed, that is the physical seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. In the context there, we're talking about people born to Abraham who are not of the elect. So, you know, it's obvious that there's a remnant, there's an elect within the visible church. Now, let's just look at other applications and review real quickly, and we'll end this here. The teachings found on this allegory are simple and crucial. <coughs> By way of summary and further application, let us note the following. First, our Lord teaches the centrality of Christ as biblically defined as the axis and foundation of all true religion or biblical Christianity. Now, I know the passage about the true shepherds is, is applied to ministers, and that's, that's, that's a great application. That's totally fine. But the focus is really on Christ and us following Christ. If we do not follow what Christ teaches, then we are not his sheep. Faith in Jesus leads immediately to obedience and discipleship. He is contrasted with false shepherds who are both heretical and immoral, who oppress the sheep, who fleece the sheep. Second, <clears throat> we are given a vivid picture of false teachers as a warning. False teachers are common and popular. But they are not focused on Christ, and they're not focused on exalting Christ or the gospel. Does Joel Osteen ever preach the gospel? I've never heard him preach the gospel. These men are false prophets. They are focused on human achievement and self-exaltation. Our Lord emphatically rejects the modern idea that doctrine is unimportant. I even heard this in an RP church. The pastor said, doctrine's not important, people are important. What a stupid statement. Doctrine is critical. And if you care about people, you'll give them true doctrine. Unconverted ministers are antichrists, blind leaders of the blind. They are humanists who do not give Jesus his rightful place. They are popular because many professing Christians are not elect. They do not possess the Holy Spirit. They are not regenerated. They do not care about the truth and are unwilling to put Christ, as defined by Scripture, as the most important person in their life. Is Christ first in your life? They are worldly, and they view the church as an entertainment center or as a social club. If we want to know the value of a man's ministry, we must ask, does he preach the truth? Does he exalt Jesus Christ in the sovereign grace of God? Does he preach the true gospel? Does he habitually live out a faithful example of Christian discipleship? Not how big, a, how big is his church? How many programs do they have? Do they have a great rock band? Do they have the best skits in town? Who cares about that stuff? It's nonsense. We want the truth. We want the voice of Christ. And then third, within the visible church, there are elect and non-elect, sheep and goats, wheat and chaff. True Christians hear the voice of the true shepherd. They know his voice. They will not follow a stranger. They will not be taken in by heretics and false teachers. The Holy Spirit who applies the word of God to our hearts, enlightens our minds, and bends our stubborn wills, keeps us in the true fold with the true shepherd. Now this fact, once again, 
does not mean that we neglect the means of grace or we're careless. The Holy Spirit uses the word or the means of grace to preserve us. The reason that heretics, cults, prosperity, false prophets, and pop psychology pastors flourish in the United States is because most people know nothing about the Bible or Orthodox Christian teaching. And I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. I, I'll never forget. I used to be a door-to-door -door salesman way back in the 70s. And I'll never forget. I, ran, we would, I would run into Mormons, and I would run into Jehovah's Witnesses all the time. This is in California. And I would talk to them. And uh, they told me they loved liberals, and they, they loved most, most evangelicals don't know doctrine at all. And they're, basically, they were telling me, we like them. They're easy for us. They don't know what they're talking about. And I noticed when they came to my door, if I was at home, and I, they would leave immediately. They, they're all, we're wasting our time with this guy. <laughs> and they came to Gordon, Jehovah's Witness went to Gordon Clark's house, and he was reading the New Testament in Greek, and he started reading it to him. <laughs> but anyway. <clears throat> Sanctification is a process that requires you to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit and study to show yourself approved. Study. Apply yourself. Learn doctrine. Don't be lazy. Don't watch a bunch of TV all the time. Be disciplined. Set aside a period of time every day where you study the Bible and you read a good Christian book. If Christians studied the Bible and studied Christ good Christian Puritan books and stuff like they did watch TV, imagine how sanctified and how solid the church would be. And then fourth, our Lord's teaching is perfectly in line with the Bible's teaching about the remnant according to the election of grace. There's a remnant, which, by the way, proves the federal vision nonsense. Although the gospel is to be preached to every person on earth and the message is, is totally sincere, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. If A, then B. This does not mean that God loves the non-elect with a special saving love. And it does not mean that God is really trying to save the non-elect. That's one of the problems with the, the way the free offer of the gospel is taught today. It's, it's, they teach that God is basically um, simultaneously hardening the hearts of the non-elect while trying to save them. I mean, sincerely wanting to save them, but he can't do it. They teach that God has an internal self-contradiction. That's a terrible doctrine. Paul says he hardens them against the truth in Romans 9.18. So there's some applications. We'll stop there. Um, but what a rich text. What an important text. Teaching is important. Doctrine is important. Studying your Bible is important. Studying good Christian theology books is important. So let us be busy. Now... I don't know if I'm going to get to preach something before I, I have to leave this. I'm going to California for a few weeks, but uh, whenever we get back, I'll, I'll keep going on this. Uh, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, wonderful passage. We thank you for Christ's teaching. It's amazing. It's so rich. It is so good. So enlighten our minds to, to understand it, ingrain it into our hearts, that we would obey and be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.